Hugh Strange works as a VP of products at Newbank. As you know, being a company devoted to innovation and product development, his work there was full of rich and broad experiences. In our conversation, Hugh shared some history behind product decisions, how to choose the right technology, build the ideal team, use product development for growth, incorporate the company's culture into the work, and much more. It was an insightful conversation, and I look forward to hearing more about his next adventures. My name is Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. Great to have you on. We've seen each other twice now in Mexico City over the last several months. So glad that you are stopping more and checking out the ecosystem a little bit north of where you've spent the last 11 years. And it was an exciting journey that you've had, right? You've been part of one of the most iconic global businesses from the very early days. And you've had this long career at Newbank. But let's go to the beginning. And you worked a little bit in consulting. You worked for some investment firms. How did the desire to work with product development come to be? Talk about how that evolved and how you became to work at Newbank. Sure. Happy to be here as well. And nice to be talking to all the Latitude folks and anybody else who's listening. Yeah, just as quick background, I spent most of my pre-Newbank time in consulting in one form or another. I started at Bain out of college. This is way back in, I won't say the year. And then I worked at Bain for a little while before MBA, had a couple of others for stints in corporate America, let's say, and then returned to Bain actually after my MBA. And, but I returned to Bain, Sao Paulo. So that was my transition to Brazil. And I don't want to badmouth consulting. I think consulting is a perfectly fine career. But one of the things that happens to you when you graduate from one of these MBA programs, and particularly the MBA program at Stanford, is you really get imbued with this entrepreneurial spirit. And so coming out of Stanford, I really caught the bug that I wanted to be doing something early stage. I wanted to be doing something that involved technology. And so the two years I spent at Bain when I was down in Sao Paulo after Stanford was a little bit painful because I was itching to get out into that world, but I had my two-year contract to pay off my MBA. So I guess I would say I knew from those two years in MBA that I wanted to do something in tech and I wanted to do something in startups. It was more about finishing up my contract with Bain and then figuring out how I could make that pivot. And the reason product development was the most logical next step for me is that it seemed to me from talking to people working in startups and even people working in big tech that it was very exciting to be as close to the actual technology as possible. And the three paths that were the most obvious to me were, about, were basically the three legs of the stool, which was PM, engineering or design. And it wasn't so much a process of elimination in that no engineering or design experience, but I did feel naturally a little bit more drawn to the more generalist feel of product management and then product management also has this bonus in that it is easier to transition into a PM role if you don't have 10 years of programming experience or a lot of design experience as well. And so there were, especially this is back in 2012, it was pretty common actually for people to be moving into product management despite not having a very deep background in technology. So it was a natural fit for me uh, to, to look at you know, startup tech and, and the PM role specifically. It's interesting because I remember when we started at Vivoral, there was literally no product manager roles like 2010, 2011. It wasn't like a career path. It was a project manager, and but it wasn't the center around product. And in fact, if I remember correctly, Sam Lesson from Facebook, he was on my board at the time mm-hmm. and he described to me, he's like, listen, if there's not a lot of product folks, take people from consulting background, McKinsey, Bain, and one of the big consulting firms, and they have typically a skill set that is helpful for product management. Would you say that your time at Bain working in consulting was something that 
help prepare you for product development and how so? Yeah. And funnily enough, actually, Sam was the Bain New York class that came after mine. There was about, we can talk about the role of timing and kind of where you end up, but it's interesting that actually my Bain class and the ones that came after it, 2004, 2005, 2006, all ended up in the kind of the startup world after MBA in sort of 2011, 2012, 2013. But anyway, that's a side story. I would say it does prepare you well. If you think about it, it's it's the classic adaptable role. You're thrown into a lot of different types of projects where you need to connect with a team really well, which is consulting as the client. It's very analytical. So much of being a PM is about metric. It, it involves getting up to speed on different functions, different markets very quickly. So I would say it's great training. I would also say, though, if you're interested in technology, I would do those years of consulting and get into technology sooner. I think it's great training as giving you kind of a post-college toolkit, but I wouldn't say there forever. I think the best training is to actually be working, obviously, in tech. And I think what helped me the most in becoming a PM was being at Nubank so early. There was things that we were doing in the early years that were just so in the weeds. And that was just a great way to sit next to an engineer and like literally just see line by line what they're doing. I think if I'd thrown been thrown into Nubank a little bit later as a PM with zero experience in technology, it might have been a little bit a little bit harder because we were moving a lot faster. And so I actually think, you know, the Nubank training for me was the best training I could have got as a PM. Yeah, not a bad school to go to. Well, a couple of schools there, Stanford and then Newbank, uh, I'd say those are both yeah. amazing schools. I want to dig deeper into the kind of that early product stuff. I'm going to come to that in a second. I, I want to call out a question from Fernanda Caloy because I went to social media and sourced some questions here. Fernanda Caloy joined us from Google. She's her director of special projects. She's moved around a lot inside the company, which is great for an early stage company. And you filled this kind of head of HR in the early days of Newbank, if I understand correctly. Could you share a few things, some of the lessons that you learned from the perspective of a product person dealing with all things people in a fast-growing company? Yeah. And so the quick background there is I was still running product. I think this was in 2018, but we were in a bit of a transition moment where our old head of HR had left and we hadn't yet hired Renee, who went on to run HR for several years for Newbank. And so I basically stepped in for about a year into this role, which was uh, an interesting experience. What I would say is, first and foremost, there there are some reasons to put someone like me into that role. One of them is it's looking at the customer life cycle, looking at the employee life cycle, and being able to think of that holistically. That's something you want to be doing, I think, as a head of HR. So think and also thinking about how your brand is being represented all the way from the leads that come into your hiring funnel to if you ultimately, hopefully promote that person or maybe in a less positive light, maybe that person gets less go- let go, but you want to kind of manage that life cycle really well. And so your know, product thinking can be useful there. I also think HR has an incredible amount of data, but because of the way that data exists, sometimes it's not in the best tools, maybe it's even manual, it doesn't always get used very well. And so sometimes you're flying blind in terms of how that life cycle is manifesting itself for some of your employees. And PMs naturally obsess over what metrics you're managing and the data you have access to. And the more technical ones usually will have their own queries. They can go and run and investigate into things. And so I think that's also also very useful as well. Uh, And so I think there were some wins related to that in terms of making sure we're looking at the experience holistically and using our data well. But I also think it's a very different world from what I was used to as well in, in, a couple of, in a couple of interesting ways that weren't always obvious to me. 
One is in, in product, you're constantly experimenting. And most experiments are kind of on the table. You're switching orders of buttons and changing flows. In Nubank's context, we're sometimes giving a very large limit to some subsegment to kind of build out our data set. Sometimes we're doing other things. I think it's good to have an experimentation mindset, but in HR, I'd call it, it's a more constrained landscape. For instance, it might be an interesting idea that someone might have to maybe, hey, let's see if we can hire this person for half the salary. But of course, if that works, this person is going to be in the same team as someone who's making twice as much. And that's hugely corrosive and problematic. And so you can't exactly test anything you want to do. And so you need to be a little bit more aware of the human elements of the fact that it's, you're all one happy, I'm not sure if we call it a family, but one happy extended community where we're all working together. And so therefore, guidelines and things like that are very relevant. And so I, I think there were some cases where tools that I might have used in product in a slightly more, let's say, detached manner, I needed to think about in a little bit more detail in terms of like how this was going to work, given that everybody here is within the same four walls. It's funny because Newbank is this obviously revered company and people don't realize that you're you got to bounce around, you got to adapt. The person running product all of a sudden jumps in and runs HR and runs people. And I mean, the, the, I experienced the same thing at Vivaral. I think that we had Renata Lorenz, who was our head of ops, and then we asked her to run HR and then she ran product afterwards. So it's, it just goes to show you that these, particularly these early stage companies or companies that are scaling, the pendulum swings really quickly on what your needs are. And there's no perfect organizational chart. It's only what you need in that moment to get you to the next stage. And then it becomes either irrelevant or stale or, and you've got to constantly be adapting. So it's cool to see that. How did that conversation go? Did David just be like, hey, can you take over HR? I'm curious to hear like the internal dialogue of how that, how that happened. Yeah. yeah, so the funny thing is it was actually the second time this had happened. It had happened a year before with operations. And I think because the operations experience went reasonably well, I think David kind of decided to come back and to see if I could do the same with HR. I would say I found the HR experience far more challenging, perhaps because the company had grown and HR is about with all functions, whereas operations was interaction with you know, customer service and logistics. But it was definitely a tougher experience the second time around. What I would say for companies that are considering this is keep in mind that, especially if you're not just moving someone to another role, but they're, re- they're retaining their other role, is keep in mind that there's going to be some trade-offs where their current day job might suffer or there might be some trade-offs with that when that happens. And maybe, and I don't know if we did this, but I would do this if I was doing it today, maybe schedule some pretty frequent check-ins in terms of being, okay, how is the interim thing going? But also, how is your existing role going, given that you're now spending 20, 30, 40, et cetera, percent in the other area? So I guess generalizing a bit, it's if your top fire might be this thing that you're having this person help out in, but check in on the other fires that are being created when you shift this capacity around. Because obviously, in my case, it's not like product is something that runs itself. And so there, there probably were definitely some trade-offs that I'm sure people who were working in product at the time would say, yeah, like we wish this guy wasn't over in this other area so often. I think the, the summary there is that like, there's nothing perfect, right, about any, any startup. And you're constantly adapting and you're overcoming as you encounter new obstacles. And I think that one, one reflection I have in terms of moving people if someone is a low performer and you move them to a new challenge, the hit rate on that working is a lot lower than someone who's an over-delivers in something and then they move on. Typically, someone that over-delivers in multiple areas, because oftentimes you'll see in startups where people are like plugging holes with people as, oh, this isn't working. Let's try this person in this role. And that doesn't, it can work sometimes, but I'd say the success rate is much lower. So it sounds like you were already nailing it in other areas and then you got tossed into other things that became important and those changing priorities, they, you went in and packed that. 
And I think also it's tempting to go to your PMs or if you're bigger to your GMs for these putting out fire rules, because those people tend to be the ones that are doing a lot of wrangling. And honestly, with products, sometimes, especially if the team is well aligned and the engineering managers, the design managers are really good, you can get away with pulling out a PM or two and just letting that coast for a while. I would just come back to be careful with that. It can be a group of people you can go to help you out in a pinch, but you ultimately do need those people performing well in some of those roles. And so I think you need to mount, you know, manage those trade-offs uh, pretty carefully. Hey there. Are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. I had a, a guest on a couple of weeks ago, Marcelo Lombardo. I don't know if you know him. He founded Omi. He spoke about the importance of listening to clients continuously. Now your work is very customer centric. So I imagine this is something really important to you. Could you talk about customer feedback's role in the product development process? How do you discover and apply it? Sure. So I think this is one area where a lot of the founding lore of Newbank or the early culture of Newbank really helped. And because we, when we launched the card, the three main pillars, like why we thought the card would be so disruptive, were basically price. It was free. The, the technology, the user experience, which is in the app and easy to do what you need to do. And then the third one was this amazing high quality customer experience or customer service. And because we were paying such almost freakish attention to the whole journey and the customer service piece as well, we were really watching that early feedback like a hawk. And I think in the, in the early years, it just created this habit of being really attentive to how customers were feeling about every part of the experience. And then especially on the negatives, like when we would get, it could be bugs, but it could also be a confusing experience where someone got passed around to multiple agents, which was not supposed to be happening. We got very attentive to I call it like long tail bad experiences and really try to make sure that we are keeping those to a bare minimum. Now, that was in the early years where you could still read most of the feedback in the early days. As we got bigger, I think we started to realize that we needed better mechanisms. It couldn't just be B or Chris or DB going through all the various customer service responses. And we tried a couple of pretty interesting things. One thing that we did in 2016, I think it was, is we had all these squads, I think like most startups at the time and probably even many today inspired by this Spotify squad model. We had these squads that were aligned to an objective. But we started actually taking the customer service teams that were working on those issues and putting them inside the same squad. And in some cases created these rather ridiculous squads of 30, 40, 50. I think at one point our chargeback squad had maybe 150 people. But the attempt there was basically to replicate the early new bank where you kind of had the senior managers next to or hearing all of this feedback, but doing that kind of one more level up. So now you're, you know, the senior engineering manager, for example, running chargeback, and you're hearing all the feedback from this chargeback process. It still has a lot of improvements to be made, and you're staying very close to that customer feedback. And over the years, we would sort of try to tweak these things. In that case, maybe the squads are a little bit too big and too unmanageable, but the idea was to try to make sure that despite growing we would always keep that feedback very close to the people who are working on those issues such that we get all the color and we understand really deeply what's happening, 
but also so that the people that are working to solve these issues are feeling the empathy from the ones who are dealing with it on a day-to-day. Now, that was 2016. Now, you fast forward a little bit to today, it's not really viable to have everybody working on chargeback in one team. And so as a result, there's been some additional mechanisms that have been developed, a huge one obviously being we've created like a pretty substantial user research team, which does not just the pie in the sky discovery user research, but also goes quite deep into how these flows are actually working. And so they're working alongside the PMs who are working together with customer service. And there's now, I don't know, probably a half dozen different ways that this happens. But I guess the general theme is it started really early because it was one of the ways we were getting these new customers. And then what happened is the company at different levels of scale would just try to develop different ways to do the same thing, but in a less in a less manual, in a more scalable way. And I think as a result, not just on customer service, obviously, because this feedback flows back into every element of the product, but I but I I'd still think today like the our customer service organization is definitely one of the most valuable things that we have. Yeah, and it was obviously from the gates, it was a very high priority for the organization. Just a quick follow-up question on that. Would you say that these expanded squads, backs, and interesting structure that you had in the beginning that was main, making sure you were close to the customer, was that by design in reaction to feeling like there was a disconnect or was it anticipation of what a concern that you would get too disconnected from what your customers were saying? Yeah, so it was... I would say two things, more or less in equal parts. But what actually triggered the conversation was a concern that we were having to grow the customer service org too quickly, that we weren't using our technology as as well as we could, that we weren't automating these processes as quickly as we could. Um, So it was actually more a push to the technology team saying, are you guys really understanding what's going on here and making it so we're using the phone? And all the data that we have, so, so that customer service is empowered to resolve these issues very quickly. And that was more of the prompt there. But I would say, you know, a secondary piece was also and related to this, are you understanding these issues properly? Second piece was also, yeah, we're getting pretty big. We're getting a lot of demand by customer service. Um, do we know what's happening here? And another thing that comes from the early days of Newbank, that's still the mission today, right, is this whole thing about fighting complexity. And that's a pretty deeply, pretty deeply held mission statement for everybody at the company. and. I think it's a great mission because it's, it's all related to that. It's really someone just wants to increase their limit. Does this need to be something that involves two people from customer service, 10 buttons? Let's remove the complexity here because that, that just reinforces these pillars of what makes the, the product so, so disruptive. What were the most significant product innovations that you shipped on Nubank's path to product market fit? And, and why, were they, why were they important? Well, I, I always love these like path to PMF questions because... The truth is we launched the card and we sort of, we didn't have a wandering in the woods and looking for pivots. Like the card just exploded. I mean, it was more like we had to, we were throttling growth rather than going and looking for it. So the fact that it was free, easy to use, and the customer service was amazing, just really took off from the get-go. And so I feel pretty fortunate that we were able to experience such a ride so early. But I can talk a little bit about um, some of the products we added on later, or maybe maybe I'll say some of the developments that came later that could have gone different ways and that in most cases were successful. Big one was launching the second product. So this was Conta, still called Nikonta, uh, that was launched, I think announced in 2017 and got going in 2018. I think we look back on the new bank journey and it almost seemed you have this fanatical customer base like, of course, the, you launch anything else and everybody will love it. But at the time, we just had the, we thought we were basically a one-trick pony. 
And it was not obvious at all that customers would want to, instead of us giving them money, they would want to put their hard-earned money in this digital bank, of which at the time there were not many. And I think it's a you know kudos to the team that launched the product, one of whom is our current CTO, that it was, again, based on similar pillars. In this case, a free account, I guess, is not maybe as innovative at the time as the free credit card, but it was free. The experience was great and the service was also amazing. And it was it was pretty well integrated with the existing product and was loved it. And we had customers that weren't able to get the credit card, but they were able to get the account and the debit card. And this was a great way to kind of bring them into the new bank community. And that's another path that I don't think at the outset was obvious, which is that we would able, we would be able to go from what we used to call our bull our um, our bullseye customer segment, so more more middle income, urban, to both up the income scale, down the income scale, rural, all over the country. That happened actually quite quite organically, and New Colta actually was a great way of bringing more people that we were not able to approve and that were probably did tend to be a bit more lower income. And so, not only was it expanding to an additional product, but it was also expanding to additional customer segments that were able to achieve in that kind of. 2017, 2018, 2019 period. Um, And I think there's a sort of a similar story around the products that came after that in terms of continuing to make customers feel like this was a product that was different from what was out there in the market. As one of our current executives likes to say, fundamentally different, not incrementally better. And continuing to be able to expand that product suite to customers and yet have them feel like the experience is still simple, easy to use. And again, back to customer service, it also um, is also kind of a good offline experience when things don't necessarily go right. So you got this credit card and you described that there was an evolving customer base, right? How do you think about, was this a discussion that you had when you're designing and developing products for a more diverse customer base with varying financial literacy and technical proficiency levels? How do you approach that? And is there anything that I hear simplicity as like a theme across the board and Nubank is known for that, but what are the elements that you look at when you're building a product for diverse audiences? Yeah. And this is where I think we really needed to build up our user research team because it definitely felt, and I don't know if this was in 2018, 2019, but it definitely felt like once we started to get quite big that our product team sitting in Sao Paulo a lot of people on on, on iPhones re- really was getting a little far from the day-to-day experience of some of our customers. I think there's a lot of different techniques to do this. And there's companies that talk about they'll have their product team using a completely different device for a day of the week and things like that. But I don't know if there's necessarily a perfect answer, but I think just being well aware of the let's call it sort of the growing spectrum of different experiences that are out there is helpful. I think the primary things that we relied on were trying to improve our metrics visibility. And in this, I think we still had some ways to go when I left, which is, I don't think we always sliced things by customer segment device type as much as we could have. And I think that's a nice window into how what the behavior actually looks like. Because in, remember, in user research, you're seeing how they perform sometimes, or they're just telling you what they're doing metrics is what they're actually doing. And so definitely improving the metrics we had is a big piece. And then the second piece was what I was saying around user research. So actually kind of pulling people in, showing them real screens, you get a real sense if there's, if you have issues with assumed financial literacy, for example, you you see if people are getting confused by how you're presenting a product, that's very revealing in terms of, okay, I need to take a different approach here, or there's something that we've missed. So I'd say those are kind of the two main, um, sort of the two main areas. I'm going to pull a question from Jaime Semprim who is the director of growth at DD Credit Card. He asked from a product perspective, what have been the key elements that allowed Nubank to stay focused on user experience 
over revenue profit through these years? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So I would frame it a little bit differently. We've always looked at engagement and engagement for Nubank is not just app engagement, it's credit card engagement and credit card engagement is revenue. So it's not that we don't look at revenue. I think the question is, are there, um, you know, are there things that are not related to the three things I mentioned, right? It's like the customer getting economic value from the product, you know, using the product and then being able to problem solve very easily. Are there things not related to that that are beneficial for Nubank that we would push instead of things that are related to the core experience? And I think part of the reason is, I think we always knew that the longer term would be won by siding with the customer. And I think that kind of sounds, maybe it sounds touchy-feely or whatever. But the other thing is the business model of credit cards was always a bit of a long game. It's you, a lot of your customers don't reach sort of their, call it their max potential until it could be years in the future, right? As they're spending more, they decide maybe it's their primary card. And so it's always like, you know, you want to win them over so they choose you initially and then continue to wow them and then learn about them so you can offer more limit, things like that and over the longer term. You know, it's a very healthy and ultimately, talking about profits now, profitable customer. And so I don't think we ever wanted to jeopardize that path by trying to throw something at them that we would get, I don't know, a sliver of EBITDA in the next two months. That just never really seemed like it made a ton of sense. And so I think the, in a way that maybe, and maybe this is not obvious to, to, to everybody, but the business side of things, and I guess the more kind of cultural sort of customer centric, customer first side of things were a bit more aligned than they seem. Yeah, I think that Nubank was always extremely intentional about that, right? From the very beginning. I think that's one of the many reasons why it's become such a lasting company that's going to be around for generations. So Nubank is known for innovative technology use. It's app-based banking platform, machine learning for fraud detection, which was kind of an early adopter of that. Can you discuss how you approached incorporating new technologies into ongoing products and how this, maybe an example of how it impacted the company's growth? Sure. So I would say, first and foremost, I would say we we actually tended to have a pretty bottom-up approach to new technologies. What, what would happen often is that you would have a business unit or a squad who would want to test out something new and interesting. And we would encourage that in experimentation process. And then if it turns out it's like it's something useful, and this can be, sometimes this is something extremely low level, such as how we're working with our cloud architecture. In the PM world, it's very often something related to productivity. PMs love new productivity softwares. I, they all seem quite similar to me, to be honest, but Trello, you name it. Or, or it could be some something very close to the front end related to design or how we do UI development. And I would say that at any given time, there was always quite a lot going on from a bottom-up standpoint. It was less common that we would take something top-down or across the organization and sort of push it out to everybody in part because I think we felt like the bottom-up process was a nice kind of vibrant way to be doing that. If we found something that was testing well, maybe over time, the rest of the company would would adopt it. But also because I don't think there were a ton of, um, call it opportunities to to do that or that we thought were necessary. But one, one example I'll focus on because it was very close to, to kind of what I was doing, especially in the last couple of years at Newbank, is that there was, this has been going on for a while, but there's been this rise of these hybrid mobile development frameworks where instead of developing something on iOS and something on Android, you just you just do it once. And native being probably one of the first more famous ones, but we came to really enjoy working with Flutter. 
And that was one example where we realized the benefits of this technology in terms of not only being able to develop for mobile much more rapidly, but it was also technology that works really well with design systems and standardizing components and making the whole experience the same effectively in terms of your look and your feel and, and, how, and how users will deal with it. And so that was one that we pushed out, driven actually by a team that I was running at the time. And in terms of what it enabled us to do, we used to take maybe on a good day, we would used to take maybe several weeks to maybe a month for kind of a basic feature. Uh, and this through a lot of work around standardization, et cetera, basically dropped that to a couple hours. And so we were now able to basically do in a week what we could probably do in months before and it was hugely impactful for not just the growth of what we now call our multi-product suites and launching you know, insurance use this. There's a lot of different products that use this. But just in the iteration process, it basically meant that now instead of having to get things really right, because it was going to be months and months of development, we could have a strong hypothesis on a small test group and just iterate really quickly. So that when we finally went to full rollout, we would have basically learned almost like years worth of information versus effectively just having a small beta group and going. And so technologies like that, where we really see the potential to push the entire company to to adopt. And I, I think that's a healthy dynamic. It's like you see a technological trend like hybrid development that you want to really lean into and you lean into it as a company. But if it's smaller, more experimental things or things that are farther in the future, tell your teams, you make a smart bet on this, see if it works out. And then you have a limited blast radius such that um, you know the entire company is not making a big commitment to something that might be too nascent. So it sounds like kind of it's a bit of push and pull. You empower your team to test different tools or new frameworks or technologies. And then once they're able to deliver the value and illustrate the value, then it could be something that is pushed out to the organization. But it seems like fair kind of middle ground where if it's completely chaotic where everyone can choose every single thing they want, and then there's... It, gets a, it can get a little bit overwhelming or crazy and there's all these different islands of information out there or different, you know, different ways to approach it. And the yeah. opposite is just if you're pushing things, it's very demotivating, right? Because I feel like some of the most effective folks, they, they're great at coming up with innovative solutions. And if you're the one telling them what to do, you're, like, you're not using the, the brilliance of your team. So I guess that you found a middle ground for that. Is that kind of a fair summary of it? Yeah, yeah. another way I would frame it is it's very dangerous to allow teams in various parts of a company. Let's take specifying how a story is written. So this is what this piece of the code is going to do, or this is what this this feature is going to look like, something like that. If you kind of let everybody do that in any way that they please, it becomes very hard for teams to interact with each other. And so when you're thinking about productivity software like Trello, it's almost more important that the teams at least agree on how the information on the card is going to be structured and what's going to be there than necessarily like what the software is that shows like where in the stack the card is. And so I think when you're pushing technologies out to an entire organization, there's definitely a potential for making teams feel like these are top-down decisions and these are kind of hurting innovation, et cetera. But on the flip side, you're also standardizing in many ways the ways that they communicate. And so I think when there was something that was done at the company level, it was usually when we felt like that trade-off was very far in the direction of that there's just a lot of benefit for the company in terms of making it easier for teams to talk to each other, um, easier for people to onboard into a new team and things like that. Whereas if you're in the, I'm trying to think of a good example here, but let's say you're in the cloud architecture team 
And there's just some really interesting new way to do monitoring of Amazon. Like, is there really a cost to your mobile team that sort of that's some kind of weird, funky thing and you have to learn a new language to create new dashboards? Probably not. But if it's about sort of how are features in the mobile app developed across all of the front-end teams, that is a huge impact. And so if you're going to change that, you better feel like there's a really big benefit because one team will probably love it, but another team won't. We saw this in a very minor way, especially with the PMs. There will always be teams that want to use, and I forget the names of all these technologies, but some other way of visualizing cars. Ultimately, we ended up going with the most old school of the old school productivity apps, which is Jira. But I think it's because we ultimately just felt like there was just too much mess. There was too many different teams using different things, and it would just be easier to, to put everybody on the, same, on the same tool. Yeah, probably becomes more important as the company scales, right? The beginning, it's figuring stuff out, and it's more about speed. And then you need to have alignment as you're bigger. But I, I have a quick question that's a practical advice that maybe you could give to the listeners. A lot of management and leadership is about empowering your teams. So how do you thread the needle on if there's something that you know that you should be doing because you've seen it before and maybe you're more experienced versus allowing the team to realize that's what needs to happen, but not forcing them to do something. And so it's like the classic, how do you make it become the ownership of your team on the idea versus what things have you learned in terms of general management and leadership where you're able to kind of empower your teams more effectively? Yeah, that's a very tough question. I personally find that it's always surprising looking backwards how hard it is to benchmark with somebody else or hear something from somebody else and learn that lesson without actually learning it. Like I think if I could have somehow transported myself from the future back in time and be like, hey, like that thing you just heard on that phone call is going to take you the next six months to really internalize. If, I wish if I could have done that so many more times, I think I would have progressed much more quickly. I forget the expression, something about experience being linear or something else being exponential, but the point of we're just slow. The humans are slow to learn things naturally. But I guess what I would say is one thing you can do with your teams, if you have a disagreement on this, it's like they're, they seem insistent on learning a lesson that, that they should just skip to the learned part and focus on something else, is try to remind them what are the key areas that the company is actually trying to innovate in. I think it's sometimes a bit distracting. It's almost like choosing your battles. I think sometimes in the early days of New Bank, we would fall into this trap where we, would, we were already disrupting banking in Brazil. And we'd be like, well, let's also disrupt how we manage ourselves and disrupt how we pay ourselves. And I think sometimes the lesson in some of those areas ultimately ended up being, you know what? Most organizations do have some form of hierarchy. Like most organizations do have some form of leveling. Most organizations do compensation calibration, things like this. And maybe my future self could have gone back and said to me or to whoever else was worrying about these other problems, what are you guys really focused on innovating here? And maybe we should just stay focused on that. And for these other things, just like benchmark what's good enough in, in some other parts of the world and just be fine with that. And I guess that's what I would say to my teams. Like if they were trying to do something that seemed like it was uh, definitely an area where things can be improved, but it's just not core to what we're trying to do for our customers, maybe what I would try to say to them is, look, why don't we put a pin in this one and let's worry on, about our kind of top three problems as a business unit first. And then maybe we can talk about doing a small test on this kind of other thing later on. So it's almost like a, not an agreeing to disagree, but it's almost like an agreeing to deprioritize or an agreeing to temporarily deprioritize this thing that doesn't seem like it's a top three issue for. I was going to dive in another example, but I think we can move on. I was going to actually ask you about, I know at Newbank, you guys chose like some really specific framework that was very narrow and not used by a lot of people, but then you became the dominant. I don't know if it was like 
composer, right? So super interesting, right? Because it was a decision, and I don't know if that was Ed's decision or someone that made the call. It became super exciting also because it wasn't like a like Java where everyone knows Java or familiar, but it was like a more specific framework. But then if engineers wanted to learn that, they could come to Newbank and then and so it became a competitive advantage. But then obviously your draw of potential engineers is maybe I don't know if it's less because there's less people that have anyways, it's interesting how you guys chose certain yeah. things to innovate on and then and it'd be interesting to kind of take a look back and reflect on what things worked. Yeah, and I think that mostly agrees with what I was saying, which is, and it actually relates a little bit back to what we were talking about before in terms of if you're going to do something that is so critical for communicating between teams, and obviously like code base they're using is very important there. Not only did Ed make that choice, but actually it was the only language for quite a while. And part of the reason there was, you know, if we're going to be building all this new stuff and for a lot of engineers learning a new language, it's just an unnecessary headache to have it closure in this one, but then it's something else here. Now, today, it's not all one. They, I think we began using, I mean, definitely we use Python for machine learning, and then I think we also began using Scala early on for something else too. So it wasn't a dogmatic, it must be only closure, but it was, again, that trade-off. It, closure is the one we're going with for now. Uh, if it makes sense for enough sense, basically, then why don't we benefit from everybody being on the same framework for now instead of kind of allowing it to be this free-for-all. And yeah, I think it was a risk. It was a risk in terms of not everybody was comfortable. If they wanted to come work in New Bank, they had to use closure. They had to learn closure. But I think ultimately, if you're going to build a bank from the ground up, you, you have some liberty in terms of yeah. picking a totally yeah. random language if you want. And you're right. It did. I don't think we would have guessed that the language would become a sustainable advantage necessarily, but it is pretty interesting. that. Hey there. You might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture-backed company. Well, I know firsthand, and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. The last question I asked around some of these lessons that you've learned along the way in terms of management and leadership, more broad, broadly speaking, the question I want to ask is, if you were to boil it down and think about the one thing that you really learned, the leading product at high growth company, if you could distill one thing down that you Maybe a non-obvious thing that you learned leading product at Newbank, a lesson you'd like to share with the audience. A non-obvious. Yeah, that raises the bar. I, well, I guess, let me give you sort of two answers, I guess. One thing that I found very fascinating that I think has implications for anyone who is working at a large company, but also starting a very small one, is that I've always thought there's this interesting paradox, and David used to say this, that the people talk about the culture of a company being formed in the first handful of employees. And, and I've seen this. I, I think a lot of what we felt made the product successful in, in the early days has continued to be the things that we focus on years and years later. But then we also talk about culture as this amazing asset that has to be nurtured and you know paid attention to. And I've always found it interesting how those two things can be true. It's like, didn't we build this culture in a little house? eight years ago and therefore like it's got its own some life to it 
And and yet I also I also think I also think the second part is true, which is that I think if even a company as great as New Bank doesn't pay tons of attention to all the great people that are inside of it and how they're evolving, what their needs are, I think somehow that that culture gets lost. And so I think perhaps my biggest learning, and maybe hopefully some piece of this is not obvious versus obvious, but I guess my biggest learning is that if you're starting a new team or you're starting a new company, I would be absolutely paranoid about that momentum. But if you're an existing team as well, I would be in some ways paranoid about how you lose it. And I think if you can somehow keep those two ideas in your head at the same time, I think you probably have a good chance of creating something really cool. And I, I, was, I was lucky enough to actually get to create a new team with a new bank in the last two years I was there. And I thought about this a lot because I got to run my own little startup for a bit. And I think we created a great team in part because I think we were super focused on, on creating a little fun culture within the broader culture, which of course is still alive and healthy. Um, but over the years, we also worried about how the team was feeling and how it was scaling. And I think that's super critical. And I think if you align your leadership priorities to that, I think you have a good chance of it. And from Paulo, who's an investor at Emerging Variant, he asked, how much of the brand's vision did you build into the product and how did you do it? That's a, that's a great one. I would say in the early years, it's interesting to see how the brand has manifested itself in di- different products. Because if you think about the credit card, in the early years, the actual the digital product, the app for the credit card, was mostly about being able to do simple things like raise your limit or block your card. Uh, and so the way that the brand would manifest itself into the digital product was in very subtle ways. You could say maybe the purple was the ultimate expression of the brand in the, in the physical and digital product, but also copy and trying to have a bit of a reverence. But really, the way that the brand manifested itself in the early years was via customer service and via any kind of external presence that we had. And at the time, we were doing very little marketing. So most of our external presence was talking to the press. It was the site. It was things like that. And I think in those early years, the what you would see from the brand was just a lot of reinforcement about sort of what the product was about and the fact that it was simple, that it was accessible, that it was human. And then a little bit of cheekiness, a clear kind of distancing of us from the old world establishment and how that definitely wasn't us. We were the anti that and that we were there and we were kind of a friendly bank for you. I think as the company has grown and as we have more products that are more digitally engaging to the customer. So think about the money boxes that we have today. There's a lot more going on with money boxes than there was with just increasing your limit. This is now, oh, I'm actually I'm saving for a trip and I'm attaching my friends or we launched during the World Cup this Boulin feature where you can actually bet on the games and things like that. Not bet involving money, to be clear, just betting. But as we've gotten into products that are a bit more complex and more involved in our customers' daily lives, you see a lot more of the brand manifest itself. But in the early years, it was more around how we talk to customers and how we talk to the press. And I think that's kind of got the ball rolling. And in terms of how that was actually done, I mean, it's a pretty complex executional task because there's a lot of processes that go on in customer service. There's a lot of ways that you talk to customers that basically had to be written from scratch by our brand and operations team. And I still remember an early example of this because it wasn't really clear to me early on how different it could be. And one of them was a pretty simple example, which is that when you call in for a chargeback, and it's where you're, you don't know where the card is being used. I think a typical bank says something crazy, like here is like the number 654385 for when you call back in four days. And then you're also going to need to fill out form 8A. And new bank, we would just say, well, first of all, are you okay? Your card's lost. Like, do you need help? And like immediately, like the whole tone of the conversation is, oh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm not actually, I'm worried about my card. 
And so like little things like that. And I think you add that times like a thousand and you sort of see how it, how it sort of fuels, um, you know, just a very, very different brand, a very, very different experience. It's a brilliant insight that is a, such a small, simple thing that makes, makes the world of difference, right? It's tiny. How are you doing? You lost your card. Are you okay? Yes. It's so obvious when you say it, but having called many yeah. of credit card companies over the years or, or banks, and it's like, it, it's not top of mind. It's not how things are designed. And so I think that's a great insight and a good one to close out on. I guess my last question before, before I let you go here is, you had this amazing run. Uh, what a unique uh, experience to be part of the early team at NewBank to scale all the way to IPO and become one of the most innovative, well-known companies in the world. What's next? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a great question. Look, I left NewBank at the end of last year, so I've been just enjoying having a little bit of time off. One, one thing, though, I've really loved about this time off is having the chance to connect a little bit more with everybody in the ecosystem. I've made a handful of angel investments over the past couple of years. I've been spending a little bit more time with some of those teams, but then also going to, going to events, including Latitude events, and just learning a bit about what people are doing in Brazil, also in other countries of the world. And I'm using this kind of as a bit of a as a bit of a fact finding time. I would say feel drawn to the early stage stuff. I in, enjoyed. I obviously loved my new bank experience. I loved a lot of my different roles in new bank, and I think the, the startup space, the early stage space, is super exciting. But I'm not going to rush into it. So right now, I'm just gathering some information, having some conversations. But it's been a phenomenal past few months, just kind of learning what everybody's well, doing. Thanks so much there. for making the time, and I really appreciate your support of Latitude. You've you joined the Angel Fellowship, you've come to some events, you've, and I'm sure that there's a lot of opportunities. If you're motivated to help early stage founders, that's literally the DNA and genesis of how we got started. And so I would love to continue to lean on you and, and, and your process to figure out what you want to do next. Count on us to be a support for you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Great talking. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.